I suppose in some ways it doesn't matter who wrote James because we know the words that we read are God's words. There's, there's an aspect of the subject in which we know they're from God. They're, they're his words. They're his message to us. But it does sometimes help, doesn't it, to add a little bit more to our understanding when we perceive the context in which those words were written. Not, not I hasten to add, because the context in any way detracts from their relevance. Because, as we've already been reminded in our prayer, all scripture is given by that breathing out of the Almighty. Every word is from him. Therefore, every word is equally relevant to us, isn't it? As when it was written. But that said, in this particular case, I do want to reflect a little bit on who we believe is the author of the epistle, just to begin with, that that might inform our consideration of the words that are written for us. And, and therefore, briefly, brothers and sisters, just to consider of those Jameses that we read of in the New Testament, who it might be and might not be. I mean, there's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but that James was killed fairly early on in Acts chapter 12, and therefore it's thought not to be him. There's James, the son of Alphaeus, and James the less, and theoretically it could be one of those. And there's James, the Lord's brother, and we believe it's him. And, well, there are a few reasons why. I mean, he starts his letter by saying that he is the bondservant of Jesus Christ. He doesn't refer to himself in any more, any other terms than that, just as Jude does also, of course, refer to himself, the other half-brother of the Lord, as the bondservant. Doesn't doesn't make any claim, does he, of a relationship according to the flesh, doesn't put himself above anybody else on that basis. Now, we know there were Jesus plus four half-brothers and sisters in the plural, so there were seven of them, it would appear at least, and James heads the list where Jesus' uh, relatives, close relatives, are mentioned in those two places, suggesting perhaps that he was the next born and therefore perhaps the eldest of Joseph and Mary's children. And when his friends, we read in the authorized version, heard of all that Jesus was doing in Mark chapter three, and the word friends is literally, I think, something of the sense of those close to him. I think the margin says his kinsmen, and it's suggested perhaps his brothers, that they went out to lay hold on him leading to that event where there was Mary and his brothers standing outside the house and calling for him. And he says to them, my mother and my brethren. Well, that's who does the will of God. That's mother and brothers. And what a sharp rebuke it was. For neither did his brethren believe on him, we read. And, and interesting it is, isn't it, that although there was then a, a distancing and a gap at a certain point in the ministry of the Lord, after the resurrection, we read of how the disciples continued with his brethren, it says explicitly in Acts chapter 1 in the upper room. And after that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles in 1 Corinthians 15. 
And then Peter in Acts 12, when he's released from the prison, you remember, and Rhoda doesn't expect to see him, well then finds, go show these things unto James, he says, explicitly, as though it's important that James knows these things. And of course, Paul in Galatians, James, Cephas and John, who seem to be pillars. And those trio of names, of course, it's a different James than those we read of in the gospel. That was James the son of Zebedee. Nonetheless, that trio are there in Jerusalem in that very critical position in leading the early ecclesia. In fact, it's perhaps the similarities between the letter that James writes and what we find in Acts 15 that gives really some very compelling evidence uh, as Brother Smart pulled together in his book. And I'm just going to very briefly uh, lay that out now without going to it in any huge detail. The similarities between what James puts in his letter that we're reading and the letter and the discussion of James in Acts 15 is, is really quite striking. The word greeting, and, and some of these you might think, well, these are a bit tenuous. And I think the argument is by the time you see all of them, well, see what you think. That greeting, that word is only used um, outside the letter of James in Acts 15 in that place and, and in one other place in Acts 23, which I don't think is significant. My beloved brethren, three times in James and used in Acts, and only it's used in other places, but in Acts, only in that particular place where James is speaking. The idea of visiting, God visiting, and keeping oneself is there in Acts 15 again. God did at first visit the Gentiles, and they are to keep themselves, just as we had it at the end of James chapter 1. Hearken, my beloved brethren, or, or my brethren, he says, only in James 2 and Acts 15. Emphasis on the name. Well, it, it's a frequent, of course, scriptural idea, isn't it? On the name of the Almighty as being the distinguishing characteristic, the family name. But whilst it's a frequently uh, occurring idea in James, it's specifically highlighted in that discourse of James and in the letter that was written. The concept of brethren, a focal point of both. And, sorry, I skipped over it. Uh, and the idea of the convert that's there right at the end of James 5, if anyone converts a sinner from his ways. And similarly in Acts chapter 15. So I, again, I'm just brushing over the surface here, but there are some interesting connections which taken together give at least some support to the idea that this is James, the Lord's brother, who wrote the letter that we're reading together. What's interesting within the letter itself, I think, is when we look at it, I think certainly it seems to me that there are several characteristics of the letter. And again, I'm only just brushing over the surface and we'll go into the letter in more detail in a moment. But five different aspects of the way that James writes. And again, I emphasize we would not, in saying this, detract from that central, important, fundamental idea that there is a divine penman, isn't there? And that he's using James to write his words in the way that he wants it. But nonetheless, it seems that the author of James is reflecting on the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself was speaking the words of God. So, 
By my count, there are at least 50 references to the teachings of, Je of Jesus in the letter of James. And it seems that over 40% are from that Matthew 5, 6 and 7, um, generally that, that uh, little section of Matthew. And there might be a reason for that. You see, it might well be as we read through the gospels that in the early chapters, that James was present and perhaps drifted away later. Uh, interesting, he chooses to focus. Now, that might not be the reason that he's reflected those passages in, in his letter, because, of course, as I say, he's doing it under inspiration. And it, he doesn't need to have been there even to have heard them, because he's being guided to write them, isn't he? But nonetheless, he chooses to focus on those particular passages. And just a few examples. Woe unto you that laugh now, says the Lord, in, in Luke's account. Be afflicted and mourn and weep, says James. Blessed are the peacemakers. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Interestingly, James 2 pulls out those same two commandments. Whoever, whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. So some fairly direct and obvious references to the teaching, direct teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then what about the use of parables? One of the great distinguishing characteristic of the way that the Lord Jesus Christ taught. So in this case, it's not so much the same ideas, but the mode of teaching. So James talks about the wave of the sea, which is used to describe the doubter who doesn't ask in faith, or the flower of the grass, which passes away being compared to the rich man who fades away in his ways. Or the way, and it's just disguised slightly in the authorised version language, but, but when we read of temptation in James chapter 1, he's actually using the analogy of prey that is lured out and fish that is caught by a bait. That's behind those words when he describes temptation and sin. He talks about the body and life being like faith without action. Controlling a big horse using a, a small bridle. A small thing has a big effect. Mist that appears and then vanishes, being compared to the transience and the passing nature of life. The patient farmer who waits for harvest. So just as the Lord Jesus Christ used parables to underline the principles and to demonstrate the precepts of God's word, so James too was inspired to be a very effective teacher, which is why, of course, when we read his letter, we can't miss the points that he is making, such clear exhortational points that come out to us. Well, I've already said he, he refers directly to some teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he also summarizes what Jesus says. So here's one example. I suppose I ought to start with the right-hand column, really, didn't I? The Lord Jesus says, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. Well, above all things, says James, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by any other oath, neither by Jerusalem. And James says, well, don't, don't swear at all. 
but let your yea be yea and your nay nay. So fairly obvious summary. Now there are two more types of similarity in the way James teaches. We've just seen three of them, and there's two more which I'll come to later, but enough perhaps just to get the sense that James is clearly drawing on the way that his master teaches his lessons, and very effectively so. I want then to come to James chapter one, because there is a, another similarity in the message here that seems to underpin all of the teaching for us. Have a look at verse 11. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withers the grass and the flower thereof falls and the fashion of it perishes. So also shall the rich man fade away. Well, here's the fragility of human life, and we've already referred to this use of a parable, if you like. But then go on to verse 14. There's something in that verse which could be a barrier, the rich man who fades in his ways. Verse 14 gives another, every man is tempted, and verse 15 talks about lust and sin. So here's something else that could prevent our walk towards the kingdom. And then we come to verse 18. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So this is the object, isn't it? This is the purpose for which the Almighty is doing all, that he might bring out of the earth a people for his name. That's the teaching of Acts 15, isn't it? And on, therefore, in his letter, he's drawing out on the one hand things that might be a barrier, there was riches in verse 14. There was temptation and lust in, in um, sorry, that was verse, um, whichever verse it was, about uh, riches. That was verse 11, sorry, verse not And then we got verse 14 and 15, temptation and sin. And then we had verse 18, which was the more positive element. But isn't it remarkable, <laughs> brothers and sisters, that there is a parallel there See, we might compare the parable of the sower with this. I mean, there isn't, there isn't any aspect of that first type of ground that we find in the parable of the sower. Because, of course, this letter is to believers. So it doesn't need to concern itself with that type of ground at all. But the other types are here. Those who receive with joy are those where the seed lands in rocky places, but in times of trial and testing fall away. And in the explanation that the Lord gives, he talks of the love of other things, perhaps, that get in the way. I, I've actually, that's not quite right, that's the next one. But he does mention riches in verse 13. And, and then there is the idea of thorns and cares and riches and pleasures and the lusts of other things. So there's two of the categories there, it seems, that Jesus mentions. And the third, those where the seed falls on the good ground, who hear the word and keep it, and it brings forth fruit. 
Now that's the object for which James is writing. These are the very people to whom James is seeking to encourage and, and warning his readers, this is the category you need to be in. Where you've not only heard the word, they'd all heard the word, every category here, every type of ground has heard the word. The question is, was the seed going to find lodging such that it can not only germinate and not only grow, but actually bring forth fruit? And therefore he challenges us as readers, doesn't he? And I'm challenged each day then to think, well, what type of ground am I being today? Am I allowing other things to get in the way? Is my mind being dragged away by the cares and the lusts and the pleasures? By the anxieties on the one hand, or the good things of life on the other? And am I allowing, and here's the critical bit, isn't it? Is that word entering into my mind and my heart to affect me? such that that word might have its effect in bringing forth fruit for God. And here's the lovely thing, brothers and sisters. Remember how, in Luke at least, the Lord finished. But the seed that landed on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Now, there's, there's so many things involved in that, aren't there? In order to bring forth fruit, they have to hear it. They have to keep it or guard it. And they have to, as it was read in Psalm 119, they have to put it in their heart. And then that they might bring it forth bring forth fruit with patience. And you know that that idea really is, in English, it kind of has that idea that you just sort of sit back in the chair and you're a bit passive and you're being very patient. And that isn't quite the sense, is it, in the, the New Testament word, which is a much more active, that you are, you are under the difficulty, the challenge, the problem, the pressure. You're putting up as it were, it's perhaps not quite the right expression, but th there is that ongoing endurance is probably a, the better English word, isn't it? And that's necessary because of all the other things that were happening in the parable that were going to detract and suck away from the bringing forth of this fruit. Now, there's a reason why I want to emphasize those two points of bringing forth fruit with patience or endurance because if we go back to the beginning of James 1 brothers and sisters we read of how after his general greeting and his focusing we know to the 12 tribes in the first verse James who is so closely identified with his Hebrew hearers but then he goes on my brethren count it all joy James 1 verse 2 when you fall into diverse temptations various kinds of trials you're to count it joy, he says. Well, why is that? Verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. So the experiences of their lives were to develop their patience, their endurance. And that's, of course, why they were to look at their life experience in a particular way. 
And so he goes on in verse 4, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You're, you're part of God's work. It's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's God who is setting out his purpose and his ways. It's God who's given the seed of the word that's been planted in your mind that you being good ground might hear it and keep it and bring forth fruit. So that's the focus he starts with. In your challenge and your difficulty, and they come to each of us, brothers and sisters, don't they, in different ways at different times and different points in our life, these challenges. Well, we have to respond in the right way. Now, just to put this alongside then, I've put here an, another translation I quite like, which is Green's literal version. Um, just to look at it in a slightly different dress. Because sometimes, as we read in verse 2 there, that the sense of the word trial is really more appropriate perhaps than temptation. And it's related to the word used in verse 3, where we read of proving of your faith. That's a related word. You're to count it joy when the experiences of, of your life into which you fall, and perhaps there's a sense there that these are less things that that we've brought about, although those play their part, don't they, in life, brothers and sisters, and the Lord can work through them as he did with all the Bible characters. But God is at work. The proving of your faith works patience. So there's a bit of a proving, a test, a testing going on here. Because here's the Bible principle, isn't it, that faith is tested. That's how God works. All the way from the very beginning, there's Adam and Eve in the garden. And God says, do you believe me? And he introduces another voice, doesn't he? That says, well, God said, but in the day you do, you won't really die. And Eve is then faced with a choice. Who is she going to believe? The voice of the Almighty who created her, or this other voice who says, well, it's not really like that. And her faith, her belief was being tested and tried wasn't it just as ours is in the experiences of life so the proving of your faith works patience endurance there's one definition to abide under to stay under those difficulties but let patience have its perfective work and he's trying to demonstrate in the use of that word, which isn't perhaps a normal English one, that there is a work here that's, that's ongoing to bring us to perfection or completion, or really it's that, that word that denotes spiritual maturity or completion, that you might be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So what he's saying is if you cut off the process halfway through, if you say, God, you must have made a mistake, you're running the wrong program here. This, this, you know, this... This was Job's problem, wasn't it? You know, the, the righteous man that he was. How was it that in his understanding, if you did good things, good things happened? And the friends said, well, this is obvious. This is easy, isn't it? You're suffering bad things. Therefore, you've done bad things. And Job spends so many chapters saying, but that's not the case. I haven't done all those bad things. But it wasn't how it worked, brothers and sisters, was it? 
it was necessary for Job, as it is for us, that the endurance, the patience might have its perfective work, that it might be brought, bringing us to completion in God's sight, that we might be perfect and mature, lacking nothing. And interesting, just that little quotation from Matthew 5. To be spiritually mature is really the sense, I think, in Matthew 5, that the Lord says when he's appealing to his disciples to see their lives and their relationships in a particular way. And he just makes the point in verse 12, blessed is the man who endures. And interesting, isn't it? That same Greek word is there translated not as patience, but as endures in the verb form. It uses that word, who endures temptation, same word again, or related, very closely related word, having been approved. So we read of the proving in verse 3. Now here's the end result, he's saying. At a certain point, and perhaps he's thinking forward to the kingdom, he will receive, he is, isn't he? He will receive the crown of life. Which the Lord promised to the ones loving him. So here's the thing, brothers and sisters. What he's saying to us is our life now is a proving ground, isn't it? It's a test, we know this. And day by day, the Lord puts circumstances in front of us to which we're to respond in faith. And day by day, we seek to respond and we fail because that's the inevitability of our nature. But our desire is to please him and to allow that seed, the good seed of his word, to bring forth fruit in our lives. Because he has promised the crown of life. In another place we read of it as the crown of glory that fades not away. You know, there is nothing else is there in our lives that fades not away. There is nothing else that is in truth of glory except insofar as what the Almighty has revealed in his word. The Apostle Paul wrote about how he, there was certainly nothing else in which he was going to glory or boast, to use another idea. But here it is. Those who love his appearing, said the Apostle in his last, the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy. Here's the question I have to ask myself, isn't it, every day? Do I love his appearing? Is that, is that what I'm waiting for more than anything else? So the Almighty is at work in our lives. Just interesting to see how Paul himself compares it in Romans 5. We glory also in afflictions or pressure, difficulty, challenge, knowing that that affliction works out patience. You can see the similar ideas to what we have in James, very similar words being used. And patience works out proven character. It's, it's a, again, a very close related word, and proven character gives hope. So James says, well, there's a trial of faith which you experience, and that's designed to produce endurance, that you might be mature and complete and lack nothing, and after approval, you might receive the crown of life. Paul says, you experience pressure and difficulty and challenge, and you have to show endurance, and proven that it might develop proven character and give hope we know this brothers and sisters 
And sometimes we just need to hold on to that reality because it's one thing, as we all know, we, it's one thing to know it theoretically. But in the reality of those difficulties that we face, those challenges through which we pass, the reality does not become less. The Almighty is calling out to us to hold on to that which he has given. And the wonderful thing is, he has given us in his word, hasn't he, the examples of people who've gone through that before. He doesn't just give us the precept or the command or the principle that explains the precept. He gives us the people that demonstrate the precept and the principle that we might truly understand. I mean, just come to chapter 5, because here he brings forth the example, and we've already referred to it. Chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husband waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts. So you've got, to, you've got to have that long view, he says, and take the endurance that he's waiting for. Verse 10, take the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction of patience. You know, you think of Elijah, who at his very lowest ebb, you know, he's just come down from Carmel and the 450 prophets, however many prophets of Baal it was, who'd all been slaughtered. And yet now Jezebel was after him and he feared for his life. Oh, I'm not better than my father's. It's better you should take my life away. Never mind that Obadiah had hidden all those prophets of Yahweh in the cave and that the Almighty had reserved to him so many in Israel who would not bow the knee to Baal. And Elijah had just lost perspective, hadn't he? Very understandably. And how comfortingly for us when sometimes our perspective just becomes a little bit distorted and the clouds perhaps begin to just come over our spiritual vision and we lose the sight of the kingdom and what it's all for. We need to hang on, brothers and sisters, and renew that vision. And then we come to verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now, are we, are we having some bells rung here, brothers and sisters? Well, we are, because these themes that we've just looked at in chapter one are coming out again, aren't they? Be patient. There's the patient endurance. The affliction, or at least the challenge we spoke of, and the need for patience. And we count them happy which endure. We, we appreciate, brothers and sisters, that is chapter one, verse 12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. The word blessed and the word happy are the, basically the same word. So when he says, we count them happy that endure, he's saying, I said that in chapter 1, verse 12. And now here's the example. And Job, who we already talked about, who, of course, when his nose was right up against it, against the wall, very understandably, couldn't understand the bigger picture, could he? And it was only when, with the benefit of God's revelation to him at the end, he saw that he couldn't hold God in the dark and say, God, you're running the wrong program. 
but rather to submit to the Father of Spirits that he might live. As we must, too, brothers and sisters. But here's the interesting thing then. Because we have, don't we then, at the opening chapter of James, and in the very last chapter, the same idea of patience and endurance and prayer being brought out. I mean, just, just briefly, just to make those links, and there may be more, but just the very obvious fact, we looked in the opening of chapter one about the various trials that people fell into. Well, it's true of Job, the man who endures temptation, himself, Job said, didn't he? he did recognize, he knows the way that I take when he's tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And then he refers explicitly in chapter five to the patience of Job. And chapter five again refers to the prayer of faith that saves the sick and confessing faults and praying one for another as Job's captivity was turned when he prayed for his friends. It's a very clear and obvious parallel with, what's, with, with Job's own experiences. So the, and you may well now see where this is going, if you consider the, the logic and the structure of James then, this is one suggestion, uh, and there may be other ways, of course, of splitting the structure down. But this idea of the chiasmus kind of structure in which the two ends of a theme sort of work their way out at opposite ends of a passage, or in this case, a book, and work their way into the centre. This is one way of looking at it that's been suggested. We've seen the first very simply, I think, with the endurance of Job that's implied in the first chapter and stated in the last. Well, there's a rich man in chapter one, we referred to briefly, and there's rich and riches in chapter four, there's lust in both places. There is the gift of God and the gift of wisdom. There are those, that idea of being doers of the word at the end of chapter one. And there is faith without works in chapter two, which means that the central bit, which is really designed in the structure, if it's right, to be telling us this is the practical expression then is, is that this isn't just theory, all these things. They must be seen in practice in our lives. Well, there may be other ways of structuring this book, and it's often more difficult to see it, I think, across a book than it is across a small segment of verses. But certainly, it's interesting to see, if nothing else, the recurrence of themes through James's letter and the clear lessons that he's seeking to teach us. But let's just think a little bit more about what we saw in chapter one. Because I want to suggest to you that there are really, at the heart of that dilemma in chapter one, we read of trial and temptation. And the two words are very closely connected in, in the New Testament uh, Greek. And therefore, there's, there's some need of discrimination as to which of those is used. Remember, he says, let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. God, God is beyond temptation. What's the relationship then between trial and temptation? Is there one? I mean, James almost begs the question by saying, well, don't, don't get it wrong. Don't think that God is bringing your temptation, but he is bringing trial. 
Well, there, there is that which is outside, which is our experience, is outside of us, and there is that which is our inward experience, which is our thoughts. And that which the scripture says is happening, Hebrews 1 says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges everyone whom he receives. So there is a trial and a test of faith we've seen that God causes or at least allows. If, if it happens, then he's allowed it, if nothing else. And there are his angels who are about us, who are supervising, aren't they, the experiences of our lives and bringing about circumstances of trial. But then how will we respond to those trials? God cannot be tempted, neither tempts he any man. But our own thoughts, our own internal responses to how we see that circumstance, is it a temptation to us? Is it a trial of faith when something that we perceive as bad or difficult happens? Is it an opportunity for faithful response, which of course is what the Almighty is looking for? So. That, I think, is, is simply the distinction, perhaps, that we should bear in mind and inviting us to consider in the challenges of our lives. Well, now, there is another story, then, that's going through James chapter 1. We've considered the seed and the parable of the sower. And just as we begin to bring this first talk to a conclusion, just think about what's being shown to us the fleshly origin of man. We can read in chapter 3, verse 6. I'm not turning all these up, so this is just to, just to give the, the flavour. That man's thinking is, as it were, from below. Whereas that which comes from God is from above. Just do look at that. If we're in chapter 1, verse 17. Every good... And every, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. This is where the spiritual thinking comes from. It can't come from anywhere else, says James. Anything you already have that's natural to you is, so to speak, from below. And the reason is, just, just keep a finger there and come to Isaiah 55. And you know those words, but see them in this context. Isaiah 55. And the Almighty makes the point in Isaiah 55, verse 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. That's the point we've already seen. And so, verse 10, as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not thither but waters the earth, so shall my word be. So that which comes down, just as the rain and the snow comes from heaven, is God's word that comes down. It's his thoughts. It's his seed, isn't it, that's designed to bring forth fruit. And bear in mind, then, as we go back to James 1, that which is from above, that which comes down, Isaiah has told us, is God's thoughts encapsulated in his word. Well, then we can read of two fathers then. There's the devil 
in John 8, which is the natural way of thinking. And in James 1.17, we have the Father of lights, who doesn't change. There's no shadow of a change. Like, like we're so changeable. You know, you wake up one day and the sun is shining, metaphorically, so to speak, and the next day it's raining and pouring, isn't it? In our mental, our mental atmosphere, our mental weather system. But God isn't like that. No change. And the origin, James 1.18 says, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth versus that which is of the will of the flesh or of blood or the will of man, says uh, we read in John chapter 1. Or the seed which is the beginning of our spiritual origin, that which is corruptible in the natural course of events, or that which is incorruptible with the word of truth. Chapter 1, verse 18. So what he's, what he's describing, and I'm going to refer more closely to James specifically in a minute, is two entirely different modes of experience that we're all familiar with. We all start out in Adam, brothers and sisters, don't we? And we've been invited to become sons of God through his son. And the way that God has done it is give us his word that we might have an entirely different perspective on our lives and that that word might bring forth fruit. Well, see then how that plays out. Because that mind of the flesh then, in which we're tempted and drawn out and seduced, is contrasted with God who's purposed. In We read, the father who purposed of his own will. Whereas lust brings forth sin, on the other hand, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Remember that in the parable of the sower, the, the good seed is not only the seed, but in the next parable along in the parable of the tares, the seed, the good seed is the children of God. It's not just the word. It becomes associated with those who take on that word. They themselves become, as it were, part of that seed too, that they might be part of the fruit. So on the one hand, lust brings forth sin, and on the other, the word brings us forth that we might be a first fruits. Not just that we should bring forth fruit, but that we should be first fruits. Sin being fully formed, we read, well, the purpose of God with us is that we might be perfect or mature. And it's again, a very, very similar word. Sin brings about when it's fully formed one result. Well, spiritual maturity brings about another. Sin brings forth death, but the word of God received into our hearts and allowed to bring forth fruit by God's grace is able to save our souls. Can you see the huge contrast there? as he invites us to live. And so, brothers and sisters, finally, what he says to us is be swift to hear and slow to speak. What we need to do then is listen to God's word and slow to wrath. Receive with meekness the implanted word. It's been implanted into us and it's again related to that word in Luke 8, the, the seed which has sprung up and brought forth fruits. It's sprung up in our minds, brothers and sisters. That's the idea, that it might bring forth fruit. So that, chapter 1, verse 22, ye be doers of the word and not hearers only. This is my mother and my brethren, those who hear the word of God and keep it. Be doers and not hearers only. 
which is exactly another way of saying, isn't it, brothers and sisters, that the good seed, having they've heard the word, they keep it and they bring forth fruit. To be doers of the word is to bring forth fruit with patience. That's what the apostles encourage us to do as we await the coming of the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, we finished our first talk thinking about how we need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And there were two more of the methods that Jesus used in his teaching that we thought were reflected in the teaching of James. And just as a tailpiece to that, here's the first. Because at the end of James 1, you recall, there is the parable of the mirror of an attentive and a forgetful hearer, uh, observer, I should say, um, and is compared to, to one who is a forgetful hearer, uh, sorry, one who is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, and the other one who is a hearer and not a doer. And it's the same lesson, but a different metaphor used in Matthew chapter 7 with the parable of the two builders, one who hears and does and one who hears and doesn't do. It's just an interesting example of where the same lesson is being taught, but James is using, under God's guidance, a different picture in order to make the same point. And, of course, we understand the significance. But you see, this is human wisdom and divine wisdom. And there's a sort of irony that even this simple truth has become distorted by human teaching. So just for example, consider what we were just reading. And we would never, I don't think, brothers and sisters, think that, J that James and Paul, between themselves, had a disagreement. At least not if we believe in inspiration, we wouldn't, would we? But the great German uh, reformer and theologian Martin Luther, who had a lot to do with kicking off the Reformation, said, James' epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to these others, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Quite ironic when you think how often it's quoting Jesus, isn't it? In the first place, it is flatly against Paul and all the rest of the scripture in ascribing justification to works. It says that Abraham was justified by works when he offered his son Isaac. Though in Romans, Paul teaches to the contrary that Abraham was justified apart from works by his faith alone. <coughs> before he'd offered his son and proves it by Moses in Galatians, uh, sorry, in Genesis 15. So for Luther, he says, well, there's Romans on the one hand saying, all you've got to do is believe. And then you've got, you've got James saying you've got to do works. Now, brothers and sisters, this cannot be. We cannot have Paul and James contradicting each other if they're both speaking by the Spirit of God, can we? We know that. We know there must be a way to reconcile it. And we understand it's not too difficult to do when we put scripture together. And sadly, I'm not going to do that in detail this afternoon, except to say 
the way that Romans and, and James are linked, of course, is through Genesis, and that it is at two phases of Abraham's life. And that in Genesis 15, he's dealing with the level of faith that God required of him at that point, when he took him abroad and said, so shall thy seed be when he looked at the stars in the night sky. And then when he, what does it say? God did tempt Abraham in Genesis 22, and we know it's proved, test his faith, that the nature and the quality of the faith that he demonstrated in Genesis 15, when he believed the Lord, when he said, so shall I see, be the nature of that faith and the quality of it had to be tested, had to be brought through trial. And so now when he said, now offer your son, to see whether you believe what I said, that I will make your descendants as the sand on the shore and the stars in the sky. And he believed in Yahweh. And God said, because you are going to do this, because you were going to do that, then, and he confirms the promises. So it's, it's just not a real dichotomy at all, is it? And it is the case that both of these statements are true, brothers and sisters. It is true that Abraham was justified by his faith. And it is true that Abraham was made righteous by his works. And it is true that faith needs to be demonstrated in action. And it is human reasoning that would argue otherwise. Now, this is not to say, of course, and this is Paul's whole argument in Romans, isn't it? That's not to say that we can earn salvation, but it is saying that the seed of the word that was planted has to show forth fruit, doesn't it? Just as we saw. As Brother Thomas says, saints, sinners are justified by faith in the obedience of faith, which is baptism while saints are justified by works. It's interesting, in the first chapter of Romans, the book that Luther loved because it said that we're saved by faith, which we are, brothers and sisters, but it says that he was calling out a people for the obedience of faith. And he says the same thing in the last chapter too. So as I say, none of us will arrive in the kingdom by God's grace were it apart from our faith, we cannot earn righteousness, but the kind of faith for which God is looking will inevitably show itself in action sooner or later. So we need to distinguish then between God's wisdom and human thinking. And this is the big challenge, isn't it? We started off with that earlier idea of that which is from below and that which comes from above, from the Almighty himself. And we've seen some of these ideas, haven't we? We thought about how the, the letter as a whole is structured. And I want to move on really to that beautiful point there of the gift of wisdom. But you notice how in actual fact it's paralleled with James chapter one there in verse 17. So let's just start there because really to understand the script, understand the point fully, I think we need to take both aspects. So we read in James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Well, as we've already seen from Isaiah 55, it is God's wisdom. It is his blessing that is coming down above all else. 
And what's quite intriguing is just to reflect on the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in this context too. Because it is the Lord, we read there of every act of good giving. And it's interesting that the Lord himself says, if ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your father which is in heaven from whom and from where those gifts come, he is willing to give gifts to his children. And they come from the Father of lights, the Father which is in heaven, who makes his son rise on the just. I don't know if that's what I don't know if that's what James has in mind when he writes by inspiration, the Father of lights, whether he's thinking of the son there, or whether he has something else in mind. The fact is, though, interestingly, that in, in that passage in Matthew, his whole point is that God makes his son rise on the just and the unjust, and the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That he is without partiality in that sense, without respect of persons, which is another big theme in James, isn't it? And that it is those gifts then are from him. And that wisdom is from him. Well, that's an interesting backdrop to what we read back in Genesis, uh, sorry, James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Well, if God is the loving father who would give good gifts to your children. And James says, well, if you do that and you're evil, then how much more the Almighty is going to do that for his children? Well, then he says, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given to him. And so, brothers and sisters, that's what the Lord said. Ask and it shall be given you, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. It does it, striking similarity at any rate between what's written there and what we find in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes those words in verse five can cause a bit of a problem, one feels. All we have to do is ask God and he will give us wisdom and what are we to understand by that that he will in some magic way beam into our minds thoughts that are from him well that's not what we believe is it brothers and sisters that is not how the lord works arguably that's never how the lord has worked even those to whom the spirit was given had to choose to listen to and apply the words. Paul writes to Timothy, stir up the gift of God. He had to write, uh, Paul had to withstand Peter to the face, didn't he? Because Peter was going about things the wrong way on one occasion. You know, having the spirit was, it didn't mean that you were sort of, as he sometimes said in churches around us, that you're, you're sort of under new management and you almost have no choice in the matter anymore. That there's the devil on one side pulling you the wrong way and the spirit on the other pulling you the right way. And the believer is some kind of pawn in the middle, hoping that, hoping that the right thing happens. Now there are powers, brothers and sisters, and they are equal, they are opposing, 
they're not equal, but they're inside, aren't they? There's our own nature which is pulling us away, and there is God's word that he's given to us which is pulling us towards him if we listen to him. So, what of this asking then? I mean, there's a clue here, in fact, in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, because you have to ask, you have to seek, and you have to knock. So there's some activity going on there, isn't there? And I think it is reflected on something else. Come with me to Proverbs chapter 2, because I think it's a helpful uh, parallel, isn't it? And I think, by the way, that Proverbs is another useful source when James writes his letter. Uh, as I say, advisedly, because... I want always to keep in view the fact that what he writes is not what he chooses to write. He's being inspired to write it. But nevertheless, uh, uh, I'm so sorry, Proverbs chapter 2, and I'm reading verse 2. So that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding. And actually, I want to jump to verse 6. For Yahweh giveth wisdom, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. Isn't that what we just read in James chapter 1 verse 5? God gives wisdom. But, but let's now read the verses before. We read verse 2, verse 3. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge, and liftest up thy voice, if thou seekest her as silver, and searchest for her, then thou shalt understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. For Yahweh giveth wisdom. <coughs> so he does, brothers and sisters, but he requires us to do something. I don't think you can conclude anything else but that from reading <laughs> Proverbs chapter 2. Because look at the verbs. You have to attend to wisdom and extend your heart. You have to cry and lift up your voice and seek and search. These are active words. The Almighty could have arranged it so that the seed of the word of God was miraculously deposited. He could have done it that way, but he didn't. He's left it for us to ponder and to meditate. And there is perhaps, although I'm not sure one could quite build this case from the way the word is in scripture, but may, maybe there is, in the sense in which we understand it, maybe there is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. In the sense that knowing something is one thing, but applying it and doing it is something else but be that as it may this is this is the divine perspective now that's being given to us and there's something involved that we can do in our desire to understand all of these words i think are describing that desire that we have to understand god's way that we might live it i mean go, go back to where we were a few minutes ago be ye not only hearers, but doers of the word. 
I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? There, there's no artificial distinction between those two things. We, we can't be only hearers and never doing anything, and we can't be just doers without the word. And, and sometimes you, you hear it kind of suggested that there's some kind of dichotomy between those two things, that, that actually, you know, we should, be, we should be doing more. Well, yes, we should be doing. We, we should always all be doing more. But the question is, how is that doing the word going to be shown forth and what does it mean and and if we don't know what the word is saying then how can we do it so really those two things go together and as we already saw in the teaching of the lord jesus it is about the word that brings forth fruit isn't it so there's active involvement there i mean i don't need to um talk to you about the benefits of of our daily readings do I? I i i think we all understand that um i, I remember an event uh, an event i remember once we were doing our readings as a family but i need to start before that because uh because one of the children and i forget which came home from school and said something thankfully there's none of my children in the orders tonight so it doesn't matter um but they said something and i can't remember what it was and they'll be very glad about that um and it doesn't matter but they said something to me and i thought i need to deal with that i need i need to say something and i don't know what to say so i won't say anything right now and i'll just have my tea and ponder it and uh, and then we'll get to it at some point you know what else so we sat down and we opened the scriptures and we read it how do you get halfway down the chapter and there's the answer plain as a pike staff it's just there we shouldn't be surprised, brothers and sisters, should we? It, it's God's word for us. It's not theoretical. And all we need to do is have the openness of heart and mind to seek to apply it. And maybe that's what some of this is about, this searching and this seeking is. How am I going to make that real in my life? What, what are the challenges that I'm facing that mean that I just need to go back and ask how I should be living. So yes, Yahweh does give wisdom, but we need to do our part. We have the oil of the word, but we need to set it alight that we might have the light by which to walk in our lives. We might just perhaps go on to chapter three, which by a rather lovely coincidence is actually today's readings i think isn't it because the theme carries on of course and only just just a couple of verses because there's a there's an interesting principle here because verse 11 we recognize um proverbs 3 11, my son despise not the chastening of yahweh neither beware of his correction for whom yahweh loves he corrects even as a father the son in whom he delights and these are words we well we know because not least because they're quoted in hebrews are they in hebrews chapter 12 where where the apostles have been saying well if you think you, you're having a hard time then you then you've you've seen nothing yet compared to the lord jesus christ you, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding your own blood like he did and if you as sons are experiencing a time of chastisement of correction well then, and then he quotes 
these verses from Proverbs 3. But what's interesting as well, if you just keep a finger there, is where they come from originally. Because believe it or not, we're back in Job chapter 5, just one verse in Job 5. verse 17 behold happy is the man whom god corrects therefore despise not thou the chastening of the almighty now that verse it seems is quoted pretty much exactly in proverbs 3 verse 11 but you see who's speaking in job chapter 5 it's the continuation of Job 4, which verse 1 tells us is Eliphaz the Temanite. And Eliphaz said that which was not right. And yet it's quoted in Proverbs. It's quoted again in Hebrews. And the whole tenor of it is behind what we're reading in James. Well, of course, I'm not meaning to suggest there's any contradiction, but merely the care with which we need to read Scripture. So there is, there is a principle which is true behind what Eliphaz says, but the application he took of it was not. What he said was true. God does work with us. He took it only in the sense that it was punishment. That Job, your experience in this, because you've done the wrong thing, and which we know was not the case. But God can act in our lives, sometimes in ways we would choose not, but it isn't necessarily punishment in the way that uh, that Eliphaz was trying to suggest. Well, be as it may, just come back to Proverbs chapter 3. We just note verse 13. Uh, because here is the divine wisdom then. Happy is the man that finds wisdom. And the man that gets understanding for the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver and the gain thereof than fine gold she is more precious than rubies and all the things thou canst desire are not to be compared to her length of days are in her right hand 4 verse 19 yahweh by wisdom hath founded the earth by understanding hath he established the heavens and you can go, and I'm not, I'm not going to, brothers and sisters, because we would be here all night. But Job 28 is, is just, just a jewel in the whole book, really, where Job writes words that are so, or speaks words that are so similar to this himself, and compares the beauty of God's wisdom. He says there's a place you can go to find, to go and extract gold and silver, and, and you, can, you know exactly where to go to find precious things. But where do you find wisdom? And he goes through a whole series of places you could look. And he ends up by saying, it comes from God, there's nowhere else it can come from. And it's, and it's more valuable than rubies. Now, it seems possibly that this idea then is behind the thinking then. When James is developing his argument, the spirit is leading him to consider both of these ideas, that which we find in Job and which we find in Proverbs 2, and it's going to guide his life and his heart. Let's go on then, brothers and sisters, to compare the, the different aspects 
of wisdom that we find. Come with me to James then. Because we're still with the same contrast that we had earlier. The fleshly and spiritual contrast. In James 3, he says about how we mustn't be many teachers, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, unable to bridle the whole body. And uh, interestingly enough, it's the same word that he uses at the very end of chapter one, when he says about if any man seems to be religious and bridleth not his tongue. It's like, it's like some animal, isn't it, that you need to control and rein in as though the tongue has a mind of its own and it's going to leap off, which is precisely how it's described, really, um, and how he's going to go on to talk about it. He says, uh, we put bits in verse three in the horse's mouths that they may obey us and we turn about the whole body and the ships, although they're so big, a small thing, the rudder controls the direction of it and then he takes the example verse five of the tongue a small thing and how great a fire a little spark kindles and uh, again it seems we're not too far from proverbs as a madman who casteth firebrands arrows and death so is the man that deceives his neighbor and said it's only a joke where no wood is, the fire goes out. Where the, no tailbearer, the strife ceaseth. And, and so he, he draws on this extraordinary idea and the end of verse 6 about the tongue being a fire. It's set on fire, the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. It's a strange expression, the course of nature. Other versions suggest the wheel of nature, the whole of our life, as though because the tongue is the is the index to the mind. It's speaking the thoughts that the mind has. And as such, as though the words that it speaks and the thought that it represents are speaking fleshly thoughts, which, so to speak, are coming from the fire of hell. We, we know that's not, you know, that's a metaphorical expression, isn't it? Describing where we naturally start out and where we naturally end up, were it not, for the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, just be very careful about that which you think and that which you speak, because it's not godly wisdom, naturally. And you see how this powerful point is emerging through every point that James is leading us to consider. And this, by the way, is the opportunity to talk about the final one of those five different styles, because he's then going to describe a similar metaphor to the Lord Jesus Christ for the same lesson. So we had, I think, before the same lesson with a different metaphor. Well, this is a, a similar metaphor. It's not quite the same. So James says, out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Does a fountain send forth sweet water and bitter, fig trees bearing olive berries or vine trees figs? Well, he says, the Lord says, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? so no fountain can yield both salt water and fresh even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit but a corrupt tree cannot bring forth evil fruit it's a similar idea and he's challenging us isn't he and he's saying well 
you kind of have to wake up in the morning and decide which kind of fruit tree you are. You know, it's not like you wake up in one morning and, uh, well, this day, you know, you're going to produce some really nice fruits. And by lunchtime, uh, you've turned into a different kind of tree. Well, you know, that's our experience, brothers and sisters. But, But he says that what you have to seek to be is to demonstrate who God wants you to be, isn't it? That's what he's trying to get us to think very carefully about and to choose our words accordingly. So by contrast then, now see the end of the chapter where he brings all of this together. Chapter three, verse 13. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Do you know what I think when when James wrote this, the preeminent man, of course, was the Lord Jesus Christ. These verses are about him, aren't they? He was the one who lived these words in their ultimate. It was he who perfectly demonstrated the character of the Almighty. And he's the only one, of course, who ever has. We, in all our attempts, fail to such a large degree. And perhaps the more we go on through life, the more we begin to recognize the more of that. And the more we marvel at God's grace and mercy as we seek it in him. But outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know, I think we could make a case for saying that probably James was the one who epitomized these thoughts. And we didn't go through Acts 15 earlier, but you know, when you, you consider what he says and how he arranges his argument, and he says, well, Peter has told us about the preaching he's done, and to this agrees the words that we find in the prophets, and therefore my judgment is this. And so he's given, well, here's Peter who's gone out and done his preaching, and Jesus has been working with him, this is the implication, I think, And now the Old Testament confirms this. So God's, I say the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, I should say. And so that the spirit of God has been confirming this because what we're saying is the same thing. And therefore my conclusion is this, and this is what we should do. And all the brethren and the apostles said, yes, this is right. This is what we should do. And it's instructive, isn't it? In days when we do not have open spirit um, direction in that way that even then when James makes his argument he goes back and says to this agree the words of the prophets you know there's no there's no question about it and we who have the complete scripture of course rely on it for our guidance anyway so there's James and he's going to encourage us if he's a wise man then and endued with knowledge let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. And he's right back at the end of chapter one, isn't he? Be a doer of the word. If any man seems religious and he's got to live like it and he's still really on the same theme. And now he's just added a component, hasn't he? With meekness of wisdom. And, th- and if it was human wisdom, brothers and sisters, it wouldn't work like that, perhaps naturally, would it? If he was looking at it from a human fleshly way, then the more wisdom that he'd amassed, then meekness might not be the result. 
But he's not, of course, looking at it like that at all. There's, there's, there's no wisdom he's amassed of himself. This, this isn't, this is a distinction perhaps that the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 8, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And here he is saying everything he has has come from God. And so he says, the important thing is to live it. But if you have bitter envying and strife, no reason to boast or to lie against the truth. This wisdom comes not from above. Oh, where have we heard that before? That's chapter 1, verse 17, isn't it? Every good and every perfect gift comes from above. It's Isaiah 55. This is God's word that's coming down to us, that's giving us his perspective and his view on our lives. So it doesn't come from above, but he's earthly, sensual, devilish. But the wisdom that is from above, verse 17, we can't miss the point, I think, is first pure. So let's just look at those in a little more detail. Let's take the, the negative side first, because remember that distinction we had before between the flesh and man and God and spirit, and it's there in the same way. It descends not from above, it's earthly. Like the first man is of the earth, earthly. It's sensual, that is, it's of the senses, it's natural. And that's such a challenging thought, isn't it, in a way, because our world encourages us to think that, that it seems right and it feels right, so it must be right. And yet we read, there is a way that seemeth right unto men, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And just again, as we have it in the Proverbs, of the woman who seeks to lead astray the unsuspecting youth, he knoweth not that it is for his life and that the dead are there. Strife, factions, intrigue, contention, envying, jealousy and indignation, devilish or demon-like, it's the root of the unclean spirits in Revelation 16. That's the idea that's taken over our world. That's calling wrong right and evil good. And that's a challenge to us, brothers and sisters, in our age and in our world to hold on to what the scripture has revealed as right and wrong. And confusion, instability, and commotion, every evil work and every foul deed. That, that, he says, that's what naturally we think about. I mean, it is the most um, clear rejection of the idea of the light within that um, we sometimes hear spoken of that you could imagine. But by contrast, then, he says, well, here's, here's what comes from God. Here's the way that you need to think based on his teaching. It comes from above. It's pure or clean. It's easy to be entreated and open to persuasion and compliance. It doesn't breed strife and contention. It's peaceable and gentle and forbearing. It's sincere and not pretended. It's without partiality. I'm not sure all of these are necessarily directly opposites. I think perhaps some of them might be. But the contrast is clear enough full of mercy and, oh, how interesting, good fruits, just continuing the thing we've already considered. But, so this is, this is the mindset then that is encouraging us to think of. 
And again, every morning when I get out of bed, I'm being challenged to think, well, which set of thoughts am I going to pursue then? And this way that I'm thinking, and this story that I'm telling about somebody else in my head, which, which of these is it, is it going to be? And just perhaps we can see an echo, perhaps, of some, in some of these, of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wouldn't be an entire surprise, given what we've seen already with it. He who was pure in heart, he who was poor in spirit, and meek, and kind unto the unthankful and evil, and merciful, brothers and sisters, to us. He's inviting us to have that same perspective and to treat others in that way. Some of these, perhaps we might argue, we might be able to demonstrate if we lived in a desert island with nobody else there. But it often strikes me that many of the attributes for which the Almighty is looking and the opportunities to develop our character come because we don't live on our own on a desert island. And the need to deal and interact with others who may not necessarily see everything in exactly the same way all the time, always. I don't always see the same thing the same way always every day as it is, let alone anybody else. I'm not talking about fundamental scriptural truth, you understand. But, but so, you know, there, there's, a, there's a way we need to deal with each other, isn't there? And an understanding way that reflects the mercy of the Lord to us. But most of all, it is about applying his word, seeking to develop his perspective and waiting for the fulfillment of that glorious promise that he's given. So wind your thoughts back to where we started. Blessed is the man that endureth trial and difficulty and challenge. For when he is tried at the judgment, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. And that's really the question for us, isn't it? That's really the only question that matters in truth. When the Lord comes and we stand before him and he calls us by our name, when the apostle says, I have fought a good fight, I've run the race, and there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, the crown of glory that fades not away, for me and to all those who love his appearing. And that's really the question for me and for each of us, brothers and sisters, as we await that glorious day. So just to wrap things up, we might well say that the way that scripture is so interrelated, the way it's constantly referencing between itself, and we've just seen just a little bit of that tonight haven't we the way that that James is referring back to the Lord Jesus Christ who is thinking of the Proverbs perhaps or so many other places demonstrate to us the consistency of God's word and the utter folly of seeking to emphasize one part at the expense of another we saw that with James and Paul supposedly against each other 
lunacy, brothers and sisters, isn't it? And today, the churches have gone one step further, haven't they, in saying, well, actually, this bit was cultural and relative and was not from God in the first place, and lose the whole meaning of everything. So we have to hold the whole of Scripture and allow all of it to speak and inform our thinking and our lives and our ecclesial teaching, of course. We thought about the divine teacher who knows his pupils, doesn't he? He knows how to teach that lesson, whether through the Lord Jesus Christ and his words and his action, or whether through James and the way that he taught. God himself is the teacher. It comes from him, from above. And he teaches through his word, and he teaches through our lives. And he challenges us, brothers and sisters, to trust in him in whatever the difficulty and the challenge that we each face, that come to us in different ways at different times, to subject ourselves to the Father of Spirits and to live. We've seen the contrast between the fleshly corruptible seed and the incorruptible, that which leads to death and that which leads to life. And we've been encouraged to hear the word and keep it and to bring forth fruit with patience, being doers of the word, and to seek his wisdom for our daily life, and to allow his words to control ours. May it be, brothers and sisters, that by the great mercy of the Almighty, we might even arrive at that glorious day that he has promised, that we might hear his words of mercy and of grace, that we might even enter into the joy of his law, of our Lord. And by 